Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu. In studio with Anne Musa, Tabiso Lohoko and Figile Lingwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, Kenyan President Uhuru Kenyatta vows to end corruption. Insecurity complicates efforts to tackle Ebola and the DRC. And South Africa's struggle stalwart Mama Veronica Sobukwe has died. In economics news, East African Portland cement company sends over 500 workers home. And in sports news, FIFA threatens to suspend Nigeria and Ghana. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. A notorious special police force in Ethiopia's Somali region has reportedly killed 41 people and wounded 20 others. Local spokesperson Mishki Muhammad says the Leo police, a paramilitary militia, carried out the cross-border attacks on Sunday in Oromia's East Haraje district while people fled fearing further attacks. A series of raids conducted by the militia group in the nearby district of Chenexin left some 40 people dead in mid-July. Months of tensions between Somalis and Romos in Ethiopia have displaced more than a million people. The Somali region's President Abdi Muhammad Omar has resigned in recent days after deadly violence. And staying in Ethiopia, hundreds of explosive devices have reportedly been found in the northern region of Tigray. There has been no word so far on the intended use. The BBC's Mary Harper reports. The Tigrayan authorities say 425 explosive devices were found under a bridge, the plan to transport them to the regional capital, Mekele. Although it's not yet clear what these explosives were going to be used for, it is significant that they were found in Tigray. Although the Tigrayans make up a small proportion of Ethiopia's population, a Tigrayan party, the TPLF, dominated power for decades. A new prime minister from the large Oromo ethnic group has introduced sweeping reforms, and the old guard know their time is up. Malta says it will allow the charity-run rescue boat Aquarius to dock after five European Union member states agreed to take in migrants on board. The boat rescued 141 migrants off the coast of Libya on Friday. They will now be distributed between France, Germany, Portugal, Spain and Luxembourg. The World Health Organization's chief has warned that raging conflict is hampering efforts to rein in and Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Tedros Adhanom is calling for a ceasefire to stop the virus from being transmitted freely. As the death toll in the outbreak reached 41, the World Health Organization's chief also called for the rapid rollout of an unlicensed drug being used for the first time to treat Ebola patients. The outbreak in North Kivu's Beni region was declared a week after WHO and the Kinshasa government hailed the end of an Ebola flare-up in the northwestern Ecuador province, which killed 33 people. 
Rescuers in the northwestern Italian city of Genoa have been working into the night to find possible survivors after the dramatic collapse of a motorway bridge. Police say at least 26 people were killed and 15 badly hurt when dozens of vehicles fell 45 meters off the Morandi Bridge. 12 people are said to be missing. The BBC's James Reynolds reports. Already urgent questions are being asked. How could this motorway bridge, built in the 1960s to carry the A10 toll motorway over part of Genoa, fail with such terrible consequences? The toll road operator said work to shore up its foundation was being carried out at the time of the collapse, adding that the bridge was constantly monitored. But Italy's Deputy Prime Minister Matteo Salvini is demanding that the motorway operators must be held accountable. Some are already blaming a neglect of basic safety in the name of reducing Italy's huge public debt. And that's the news. It lands at 8.30 Central African time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta says he will not relent in his ongoing war against corruption in the East African nation, a war he says has cost him friends. Kenyatta says he is first Graft will not spare the so-called big fish, indicating that he is determined to win. There have been several arrests and prosecutions of top government officials over corruption, raising hope that one of the world's most corrupt countries may have finally decided to slay the corruption dragon. Sarah Kimani reports from Nairobi. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta told a church service on Sunday that this time his determination to end corruption is likely to cost him friends. Over the last uh, few weeks, I've lost very many friends, Bishop, because <laughs> um, I've been receiving so many calls that, you know, how can you just sit there and watch all this destruction going on? You must stop it. And I said, uh, well, it's difficult to stop. It's difficult to stop not because we love to destroy, but because we must fight impunity. Because if we fail to fight impunity, a time must come for every Kenyan to realize, no matter how powerful you think you are, no matter how much you think you know people in high position, no matter how much money you have, that will not save you. That will not save you. Kenyans, tired of mega scandals, are happy and hopeful. President Kenyatta, you better remain alone in this country, but let those people who are dragging your work behind be behind bar. Let the fight go on. Let the president and those who are with him, working with him, fight the corruption. I'm very confident with the judiciary. I'm very confident with the president. Something will be done. People will be arrested. But there is also cynicism among political commentators. Patrick Gathara is a political analyst based in Nairobi. So when we simply focus on how many people are being prosecuted, and it's good that people are being prosecuted, um, uh, we miss the, the, the bigger picture, which is how do we actually stop corruption happening in the first place. 
Kenya's anti-corruption agency indicated in 2016 that the country loses a third of its budget to corruption. In February this year, Transparency International, an anti-corruption watchdog, ranked Kenya as one of the most corrupt countries in the world at position 143 out of 180 countries scored. And if you think about the numbers that are involved, the people are stealing two billion, three billion. You know, these are huge amounts of money. The incentive for somebody to simply go in and take, you know, knowing that he is number one and likely to be caught, he is unlikely, even if prosecuted, to actually be convicted. To date, I think we have only a handful of senior officials who've been, who've ever been convicted uh, uh, for, for corruption. Now, in his second and final term, Kenyatta knows only too well that his legacy may be blighted by the high cost of corruption. Sarah Kimani, Kenya. Remembering Mama Albertina Sisulu. We will say whatever we are expected to say by the people. And we are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the people. We are aligning ourselves with the struggle for the liberation of the oppressed people of this country. Hashtag Mama Sisulu Centenary. The struggle stalwart and anti-apartheid activist Zondeni Veronica Sobukwe has died at the age of 90. She was the widow of the late PAC founder Robert Sobukwe. Mama Sobukwe was awarded the Order of Lutuli earlier of the death under banishment of her husband. Let's listen to this poem by renowned South African poet Don Matera paying tribute to Mama Sobukwe. So this is the piece put together for this African queen. The African queen, Azania. Friend of the African dream of liberation and humanity. You, caring, giving servant of God, this humble ululation of song and gratulation comes from the deep, deep heart of the Azadian nation. To talk more about her passing, we are now joined on the line by PAC President Narius Muloto. Good morning, Narius, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Thank you to you. Good morning to you and to the viewers of, of the channel. Now, we wake up to sad, sad news this morning. Another struggle icon has fallen, and that is Mama Zondeni Veronica Sobukwe. Tell us more exactly as to what happened. Yes, uh, Mama Sobukwe fell ill um, 
She was sick for some time. She was in and out of hospital. And we were saddened by her passing this morning. She was released from hospital yesterday, and she passed on in the early hours of, of this morning. Uh, while we are saddened by her passing, we are also very proud um, uh, by the role she played during the struggle, in particular in supporting being the strong woman behind the life of the founding president, Robert Mangali Sosobukwe, and also for uh, growing the children while the husband was in prison, both in the Pretoria Maximum Prison and on the Rotten Island, where um, he was sentenced by the Act of Parliament called Sobukwe Clause. How would you describe Mama Sobukwe as a person? Well, we can describe her as a very solid a woman who, led, who doesn't have any elements of artificiality. Uh, she remains herself, and she is an African woman who believes in African values, and very proud of that. Uh, she was, uh, as I said, highly principled uh, throughout the way. We remember the last uh, day we, we visited her uh, after leadership of the PAC. We spent the Mother's Day with her, this year, and uh, she uh, she was very happy. She was uh, smiling and laughing the whole day, and she asked us consistently and continuously, are you here to bid bye-bye to me? And we said, no, we are here to spend time with you, not to bid bye-bye. We hope to see you again. But she was very consistent even when we are about to go. But we were particularly inspired also uh, by wait when we are uh, when we are about to go. Her uh, last message to the leadership of the PAC was Lengawele uh, Muba. That means don't go back. That you must keep on moving forward. Move forward. So we are we are very inspired that uh, even at the at the age of 91, uh, she was still having a very fresh memory, remembering everything that she went through. She was able to give us um, the history of how she went through <clears throat> the difficulties with uh, his uh, husband. Do you think Mama Sobukwe got the respect and honor while she was still alive, considering her role in the fight for freedom of this country? For that reason, we do uh, thank and appreciate um, President Sira Ramaphosa for honoring her. Um, we know that Sobukwe and his husband, similar to all the leadership of the PAC, were not really respected and honored even by the current government, despite the fact that uh, they were in the trenches, in prison, everywhere together, they suffered together. But the suffering of Sobukwe is well known, recorded. Uh, he was, uh, it was a special suffering because he was, he was not just treated as an ordinary um, a politician, an ordinary prisoner. He was a person who was given special uh, <clears throat> treatment, uh, that of harshness, uh, by the uh, apartheid authorities and regime. Now, let's speak about Mama Sobukwe's legacy. What can we learn from her legacy and take it going forward as the generation of today? 
I think what we can we, what we can learn better from Mama Veronica Sogukwe is this um, African woman who is very firm, solid on African values, who believes that uh, be yourself, uh, develop from where you are, start from where you are, and know what you want, and stick to uh, have a clear way of achieving what you want, and move towards your goal. Don't 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 lose focus. On, on, on your goal, do what you need to do, do what is necessary to get you to where you want to, and do not uh, go away with the wind. No matter how strong the wind is, no matter how many opponents stand on your way, remain focused and move forward. This is what we can remember from Amasogukwe, and that we must remain firm. She was not moved by different difficulties on her way in supporting your husband. We'll leave it there for now. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you very much. And that is Narias Mulodo, President of the Pan-Africanist Congress of Azania, joining us on the line and uh, chatting to us on the passing of Mama Zondeni Veronica Sobukwe. Channel Africa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Mochemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese, and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yaoundi. Informing the world about Africa. Ngatani in Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. It appears as power struggles in South Africa's Pan-Africanist Congress of Zania, the PAC, are far from over. Over the weekend, party stalwarts staged a unity conference in Kimberley in the Northern Cape Province with the hope of uniting warring factions. The gathering was dismissed by one of the party's presidents, Narius Muloto, as illegal and an attempt to weaken the PAC ahead of next year's general elections. Muloto, who has snubbed the conference, has labelled those who attended the Kimberley conference as renegades. Tsepo Ekaneng has more. The PAC's leadership squabbles continue to haunt the party which was once revered as a formidable force in the fight against apartheid. In the past four decades, the party's voter support has continued to fall amid infighting, which resulted in the formation of splinter groups and parallel structures. The embattled president, Narias Muloto, lost his court bid to hold the staging of the four-day unity conference in Kimberley. An anti-Muloto faction say they do not regard him as their president, arguing that he was suspended from the party before his election in December last year. An outrage Muloto has slammed his detractors, labeling them as rogue members who have no legal authority to stage a meeting under the PAC banner. Look, those people are not members of the PAC. We are emphasized time and again. They are not members of the PAC. They are led by a group of criminals. How can a PAC be led by a bunch of criminals? Because they know the elections are coming. They are polluting the PAC space because they are being managed. They went there pretending that they, they, they want unity. It's an attempt to try to pollute our space and form 
another name but they don't want to go away from the PAC. PAC has expelled them as an organization they know that Moloto has also accused the courts of failing to mediate objectively in the party's leadership dispute we are also disappointed by the attitude of the courts at times where clearly where that the court order in the papers they leave these court orders and begin to make their own political declarations that is making us angry because they are making mockery of the courts. Those meetings are unlawful, are illegal, they are not, they are not authorized. Meanwhile, the party's solitary member of parliament, Lutando Mbinda, has justified the staging of the weekend meeting as a genuine attempt to unite the party's warring factions. Our door is still open even for those who are still outside, but at the end of the day we need to, to go to an elective congress so that we sort out this issue about the leadership of the PAC. People that were, were, were looking for this uh, unit are the ordinary members of the PAC. And uh, for me, I regarded that process all as a healing process because members of this organization have been victimized one way or another. But by the time we went out of that meeting, then everybody was just talking one PAC, one organization. The weekend PAC unity gathering has, among other things, resolved to stage a leadership elective conference in December. Tsepuikaneng in Johannesburg. Land expropriation without compensation must continue without any fears in South Africa. That's according to the ruling ANC. The party's Deputy Secretary-General Jesse Duarte says amending the constitution to allow for land expropriation without compensation should also be sensitive to addressing historical injustices. Duarte briefed the media yesterday on the party's National Working Committee meeting on Monday. She said the ANC would continue to engage relevant stakeholders on the land issue. These will include traditional leaders, rural communities, farmers and farm workers. Abongile Dumako reports. The ANC is adamant that land will be handed back to its rightful owners. A meeting of the party's NWC has called upon members of parliament to make sure that the amendments on Section 25 of the Constitution are speedily implemented. This amid fears of economic instability and threat to food security. But that doesn't make the ruling party change its view in any way. Jesse Duarte says land gives a sense of dignity and identity to all citizens. Although the Constitution does not preclude expropriation of land without compensation, it should be amended to make this matter explicit. We reiterate the ANC's position that any changes to the Constitution and its effect on expropriation without compensation will be done in a manner that is in line with and with respect for our rule of law. The ANC National Working Committee has called on authorities within the financial sector to speedily investigate developments at the Limpopo-based VPS Mutual Bank. Duarte says the bank has an important role to play in society as many people rely on it for financial services. She says they will monitor developments in the Mutual Bank. The National Working Committee welcomes the statement by Minister William Kize that the criminal investigation by the investigative authorities led by the Hawks working with the South African Reserve Bank into the events, events that led to the collapse of VBS Bank will continue. Where wrongdoing is found, 
the law should and must take its course. The intervention should also assist and protect municipalities and taxpayers who have banked with the VBS Bank. The Deputy Secretary General said the ANC NWC also welcomed the latest VET panel report, which among others recommended that more basic food stuff, sanitary towels and school uniforms must be exempt from VET. On the other hand, she has disputed reports from the media suggesting that land expropriation without compensation is an election issue, saying parliamentary processes will take place and in due course, the suggested amendments on Section 25 of the Constitution will come into effect. I'm Mabongile Dumago in Johannesburg. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. South Africa's Trade Union Federation, COSATU, has accused the ruling African National Congress of pandering to white monopoly capital and abandoning its socio-economic transformation agenda. This came out at the end of its one-day special Central Executive Committee meeting in Johannesburg. The Labour Federation is irked by threats of job cuts in the public sector and the impending massive retrenchments in the platinum belt. As Ntebo Mokobo reports, the Federation now wants an urgent meeting with the ANC. Bad lines are drawn between COSATO and the ANC, and at the heart of their differences is the country's labor and economic policy direction. Currently, unemployment is at 27%, and compounding the problem is what COSATO deems a unilateral percentage point increase in VAT. Although both the ANC and its government have denied reports that around 30,000 jobs in the public sector are on the line, the governing party's alliance partner is sitting with anger that the ANC sought to impress foreign investors and rating agencies at the expense of the poor and the working class. Kosato General Secretary speaking, Charlie Njali. Kosato is worried about the influence of the finance capital that is now dictating microeconomic policy decisions taken by the government. The National Treasury's obsession with pacifying rating agencies and foreign investors in the face of growing unemployment and retrenchment and the stubborn adherence to the neoliberal microeconomic framework, despite a failing economy, points to a government that has abandoned the concept of radical economic transformation. The failure by the ANC to rein in 
its national treasure and monitor government coupled with our fledging economy has further strengthened the monopoly capital. The federation is also egged by Implus' intention to cut 13,000 jobs in the mining sector and Jalin Jali warned that if the status quo remains, it will be difficult for the country to achieve the objectives of the National Development Plan of reducing unemployment and creating jobs. Chapter 3 of the National Development Plan state that unemployment will have declined from 25% to 14% in 2020 and to 6% in 2030, and all the 11 million jobs will have been created by 2030. By 2020, the unemployment rate was supposed to have been reduced to 20%, but in 2018, it's still around 27%. The NDP targets have early been missed, and it's unlikely that they will be realized by 2030. The upcoming National Congress will have to resolve on how we deal with the ANC failure to implement its own policies and those of the alliance. He says they are calling for an urgent meeting with the ANC in a bid to mend relations, insisting that if the situation doesn't abate, they will withdraw their support for the ANC in the 2019 elections. The special CEC has therefore instructed the National Office Bearers of COSATU to request an urgent meeting with the ANC top six to communicate a clear and ambiguous message to them that workers will not vote against their interests in the upcoming national election. We view the plans to retrench workers as an act of ultimate betrayal. We are allied to the ANC not for sentimental reason or historical nostalgia. If the ANC abandons its own manifesto and supports our dreams and aspirations as workers, we have no reason to support it. And COSATO President Stumotlamene says they are not surprised by the ANC's tiptoeing on the implementation of the policies adopted at NASREG. We are not surprised. We are engaging in a highly contested terrain. We're contesting the space with the capital. Against job losses with the first action starting in the northwest on Friday and culminating into a national day of action to be declared at the National Congress next month. I am Tebumokob in Johannesburg. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, Nigeria's acting president orders the overhaul of a police unit following allegations of human rights violations. A notorious special police force in Ethiopia's Somali region has reportedly killed 41 people and wounded 20 others. And the World Health Organization warns that raging conflict is hampering efforts to rein in an Ebola outbreak in the Democratic Republic of Congo. Those are the stories making headlines. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Now, despite South Africa's ongoing push for gender transformation in senior positions, new research shows that a number of female leaders in the country's top companies remains exactly the same as in 2015 and has actually dropped since 2012. 
The research indicates that there has been moderate progress in gender transformation at executive level, but none whatsoever at CEO level. This year, the total female representation at board level in top 40 companies is 32%, with 64% of these women being black females. For more on this, we are now joined on the line by Advaita Naidu, Chief Operating Officer at a leading search firm, Jack Hammer. Good morning, Advaita, and thank you so much for joining us on Africa Rise and Shine. Hi, Lulu. Thanks for having me. Now, give us a sense of the overall leadership landscape in South Africa and the rest of the continent. Yeah, so, I mean, as you said, um, the survey that we've done this year examines the JSE top 40 companies and the leadership makeup of that. And as you rightly pointed out, there's been no improvement in female representation at CEO level. There's just one female CEO um, in a JSE top 40 listed company, um, and that has actually decreased since 2012 when there were two. Now, we know that there have been changes in the CEOs over the past five or six years. It's just unfortunate that none of those placements have been female. Now, what are your thoughts on only there being one female CEO in the country and only 64% of black women being on board at board level? So, I mean, you know, those are two different things. I mean, when we look at the CEO, that this is the ultimate decision maker in a company, and boards obviously are acting as advisory capacity. When we look at something like executive level, we see that there is uh, a rising group of women who could ultimately end up in the CEO position. It's just um, we cannot comment on how fast that would happen or, in fact, if it will happen or if that transformation would stay at executive level. Now, just, uh, Avaita, what, what, what are the reasons, if you have managed to find out during your research, what are the reasons for um, such a slow pace or, in some instances, a drop, uh, you know, from 2015 and uh, 2012? There has been a drop, as I stated in the opening. What, is the, what are the reasons behind uh, these, uh, what, exactly what's happening? I think we we don't have definitive reasons. It's not entirely clear, but there are a lot of assumptions that we can make, and this is based on global research, uh, the first being that women end up in business support functions like HR or legal or marketing, although by and large the data indicates that when people enter the workforce, there are equal numbers of men and women in those core business functions like finance and operations and strategy, and these are the positions that will ultimately lead to the CEO seat. It's just as you go up level by level in an organization, you see fewer and fewer women there. And one of the reasons often cited is that women choose to leave the workforce to focus on family commitments, um, and there aren't enough women left to take up the most senior roles. Or when they return, you know, their male counterparts have exceeded them in terms of experience and exposure. But I think that the problem we uh, face here is assuming, one, that women don't want those top positions, and two, that having a family would preclude the possibility of serving as a successful CEO. So you often find that companies are not investing in developing talent early on, um, on the assumption that the women are going to leave anyway, so what's the point? 
But we've seen in some instances women who've made it all the way to the top. For example, if you look at uh, Maria Ramos, and uh, you know she's got she's a family woman. She's um, and she's made it to the top. Is there a certain trajectory that should be used or that should be implemented from the early stages? Not a, you know putting aside the fact that women at some point will want to start a family or or you know take some time off. But is there a trajectory of looking at young women and developing and growing those women into certain areas and not just the support roles where they will eventually end up as a huge competitors for the males in their industries? Absolutely, yes. So it's those functions like finance and operations. Those are the career paths that one needs to follow to get there. And if you look at ABSA, where Maria Ramos is uh, is the CEO, there are women who operate at executive level in those core business functions, and any one of them could be the next CEO. So, you know, ABSA is doing quite well in its transformation at executive level. And then in terms of nurturing and developing that talent, you know, we often say a jackhammer, not even a man just wakes up one day and becomes a CEO. He is nurtured and developed into that position. People identify the talent early on. And the access that you need is something, access to leadership opportunities, a mentor, a business mentor to guide you on, you know, the good decisions to make when it comes to planning your career, having access to those um, same opportunities as a man does, making sure that there's no pay gap. Essentially, someone needs to be groomed for that corner office. You can't just hope and pray that someone will rise to the top. Realistically speaking, are companies, um, you know, showing any indication of the fact that they want to appoint more women in senior positions, especially the operational ones, instead of it being just a a boys' club? Absolutely. As an executive search firm, we get uh, approached by clients often who say transformation is at the top of our agenda. We want to obviously appoint the best person for the job, but we also appreciate the fact that a woman or a person of color can bring a diversity of thinking that we would otherwise not have. So diversity doesn't just mean putting a different person in the seat. It means appreciating all that they have to offer because they they come with different viewpoints. And in our own placement data from 2016 to 2017, we did find an increase of 8% in senior level female uh, appointments. So absolutely, companies are recognizing the need for change. It's just, as we said, we don't know the pace at which this change will happen. Now, just looking at, uh, it is Women's Month, uh, the month of August, and um, do you think or do you believe that uh, women's organizations or women's entities in terms of empowering younger women and developing young women for, you know, as we mentioned earlier, the growth and development and, you know, the mentorship programs, do we have enough of these programs to ensure that at some point in time, young women of all races end up in executive operations? positions um, and there's a you know diversity in big companies yeah so I know that there are individual companies that have um, uh, platforms uh, for women to join up individual mentorship pro- uh, programs and there are external ones I think what we see is that there aren't enough mentors who are already at those upper levels to guide women on how to reach that level themselves. So, you know, until you uh, have gone through the ranks, you can't necessarily give the best advice. So I think people are trying very hard. It's just how do we reach that point where it, it becomes um, a natural transition rather than saying, well, these are the things that we have to do to ensure that more women end up at executive or CEO level. Advaita, thank you so much for joining us. We'll leave it there for now.
That's Advice Naidu, Chief Operating Officer of a leading search firm, Jack Hammer, joining us on the line. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. The World Health Organization has called on warring parties in the Democratic Republic of Congo's North Kivu province to provide secure access to responders of the Ebola outbreak so they can serve the affected populations and save lives. The UN health body says the active conflict in the area is a barrier to controlling the outbreak, which has already claimed more than 30 lives since it was declared in late July. More from Dr. Matsidiso Mweti, the WHO's Regional Director for Africa. We have an Ebola outbreak where up to now we have 52 cases, 25 of them confirmed and 27 suspected in four localities with the epicenter, the greatest number being in a town or a village called Mangina in the northeastern part of the DRC. We're very concerned about this outbreak, although we're very encouraged that the government came out very quickly to declare it at the end of July. And as WHO and other partners, we are already on the ground. We have about 40 experts who are increasingly being deployed there. Our concern is that this is happening in an area of the DRC with quite high population density, a lot of population movement, neighboring a number of countries like Uganda, Rwanda, and where there has been an ongoing situation of insecurity and conflict. Despite that, we just have to make sure that we have the strongest possible response put in place in order to overcome some of the challenges. But are you surprised that this 10th outbreak came so early after the most recent one? Do you think that it was avoidable? No, I don't think it is avoidable to have an outbreak. The virus is in the environment. We have seen with genetic sequencing of this virus that it's not actually the same outbreak spreading across the country. The last outbreak whose end we were celebrating recently was in the northwestern part of the country. This is in the northeastern part of the country. It's actually a a strain of the virus called Zairus. What is our determined objective is that such outbreaks should be able to be detected as soon as the virus has crossed from an animal to a human and it starts to spread among humans. In general, we think that outbreaks are a part of life. They're inevitable. We are coexisting with the organisms. Our duty is to make sure that we set in place systems that can detect and control them quickly. Now, you spoke about one of the challenges being that this latest outbreak is taking place in an area embroiled in armed conflict. Talk to us about some of the challenges that are being, you know, faced there on the ground. Yes. Mangina, the place that we visited with the director general, which is the epicenter, we also visited a town called Beni, having gone through Goma. These are areas which are in the bordering area of what is a grade four security area by the UN standards, meaning it's kind of red area where there is ongoing 
armed conflict, sometimes with kidnappings, sometimes with attacks on civilians. So it requires a great deal of investment in ensuring that uh, the people that we are deploying there and the health workers, the national health workers, are able to do many things. First of all, it is an evolving outbreak. We need to be able to follow every alert and every contact so that we contain it. We need to know where this virus is going and is spreading. And in some of the areas, it's simply too dangerous for our people to get there. The second risk is that people who are living in these areas themselves need to be able to move freely and to be able to access healthcare when they need it. So what I'd like to underline about this is that it really requires the cooperation of all those who are even engaged in the conflict because we are collectively at risk. Even the people living there and the people engaged in the conflict are all at risk of being infected by this virus. So we are pleading for cessation of hostilities, in a sense, that will enable not only people who are working to contain the outbreak to be able to move around freely and follow up contacts and uh, make sure that we're providing services to people, but also to the population to be able to move and go where they need to be helped. Now, let's talk about vaccination. How important is it going to be in the fight against a disease like Ebola? It's going to be an extremely crucial tool, we think, and we're very encouraged not only in terms of the vaccine that is being deployed in the DRC now by the way that it worked in Guinea, where it was first tried out, although that was on a very limited scale, but it was used as well in the previous outbreak. And we think it made a big contribution to the way in which we were able to contain this outbreak quickly. It's a very important tool. For example, because this outbreak was spreading undetected for some time, healthcare workers were very exposed And we have fortunately been able to start vaccinating healthcare workers in Beni and in Mangina. In addition to that, we have an approach called ring vaccination, where we vaccinate the contacts of cases and vaccinate the contacts of those people in a way to encircle the virus so that we contain it. How easy or difficult is it going to be, doctor, to implement this ring vaccination method in a situation like or in an area like North Kivu province? Yes, it'll certainly be more challenging than was the case in Ecuador in the last outbreak. There, our main problem was the fact that it's a very remote area, very difficult infrastructure for communication. And of course, we need to maintain this virus to keep it at very low temperatures. So we- that was Dr. Matsidiso Mwedi, the World Health Organization's Regional Director for Africa, speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. Our economics update up next with Tabi Solohoku. Good morning. East African Portland Cement Company has laid off 520 workers in a move as the struggling manufacturer says it's aimed at keeping the company afloat. EAPPC says the board of directors had opted for non-renewal of contracts due to a bloated workforce whose wage bill was unsustainable. The company was responding to claims by former staff made through Kenya Chemical and Allied Union accusing it of unprocedural termination of contracts, nepotism and failure to remit statutory deductions. 
Namibians who do not have access to financial services stood at 22% in 2017, down from 31% in 2011 and 51% in 2007. This is according to the Namibia Financial Inclusion Survey of 2017, which showed that 78% of Namibian adults are financially included and are served either through commercial banks, non-bank formal ways, or informal financial mechanisms. The Financial Inclusion Survey which was conducted in November last year by the Namibia Statistics Agency in collaboration with the Bank of Namibia and the Finmark Trust had a sample size of 2,114 households from the 14 regions of Namibia. South Africa's Food and Allied Workers Union has called on the government to criminalize the selling of illicit tobacco products in the country. FAU and other civil rights organizations marched to the National Treasury in the capital Pretoria to demand action against the selling of illegal cigarettes. They say the illegal traders are getting away with a wide range of serious offenses including tax evasion. FAU's Secretary General Katishima Simola we're gonna ask the minister through him government to consider criminalizing people who are selling cigarettes below the minimum collectible tax because it means they don't pay tax and that should be regarded as criminal International trade consultant Trevor Simumba has a charge that Zambian President Edgar Lungu had no idea about the true extent of the country's debt. Simumba charged that people working with President Lungu are lying to him over the debt situation. He lamented that those like him who have spoken out about the country's debt position have labelled, or rather have been labelled as not being genuine. The U.S. dollar trades at 10.47 Botswana Pula. It's at 10.3 in Zambia. In BRICS currencies, it's trading at 3.87 Brazilian rail, at 66.84 Russian ruble, and at 69.84 Indian rupee. 6.89 Chinese yuan, 14.22 to the South African rand. 78 pence to the British pound, 87 cents to the euro. Golden thousand, 188 dollars. Platinum, 789 dollars an ounce. The price of brand crude oil is at $72.27 a barrel. I'm Tabisolo Hoko for Channel Africa. Our sports update up next with Figile Lingwati. In our sports update, we're kicking off with football news. South African Premiership side Mamelodi Sundowns goalkeeper Dennis Onyango is a doubtful starter for the crucial CAF Champions League Group C match against Widat Casablanca in Morocco on Friday night. The Ugandan international travelled with the team to the Morocco capital alongside two other goalkeepers, Telango Beni and Kennedy Mweni, who are registered for the Champions League. Mweni has been deputising for Onyango, who is not sure if he will play on Friday. As long as I'm with the team, I mean, uh, it's not necessarily important that um, I'm, I'm 
play. Anyone can play and we win. Kennedy played and we won the last game. And for me, just to be with the team and uh, seeing the team win, getting to the next stage, it's very, very important. Not necessarily for me to play, but to be part of the team. If I'm given a chance and I'm ready, I'll play. But at the moment, everyone can play and we, we can win. Uh, that's for the, <laughs> for the medical team to, to tell, because it's my first session today since I, I was knocked out in Polo Kwane. So, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> nice vibe so with the teammates so as well. Yeah. <laughs> yes, it's good to be back with these idiots here. Yeah? Which is good. And uh, for me, it's the best feeling to be around my teammates and being happy with the team. And especially when the team is winning, it's very, very important. The Ugandan is recovering from the head injury he suffered against Pulukane City in a league match last week. He cannot recall the incident that knocked him out and saw him being stretched off the field to a hospital. He is relieved to have recovered so soon. Yeah, of course, uh, it's very nice to be around the team. I'm not used to staying home, like staying away from football, but it's good that I'm with the guys and the feeling is good. Well, all I know is that uh, he knocked me out with the elbow when I was up in the air. But uh, I don't blame him. It's a game of challenge and, you know, it's a, it's a contact sport. So, yeah, for me, it's okay. It's not good to be knocked out, but it's part of the game. You can't avoid the, the contact in the sport. It was a concern for everyone, especially the supporters and my teammates. And back home, uh, of course, People also worried about my national team because we're playing the game next month. So it's it's a, a good experience also to know that uh, people care about you. In hockey news, South Africa's Marupian caveman goalkeeper Rassi Peterse is back in training ahead of the Prima Hockey League, the PHL, next round of games starting on Thursday. Peterse, who was named keeper of the tournament at the Interprovincial Tournament in Piramarisbeck last month, missed last weekend's two victories for his team against Garden Ruth Gazelles and Mapungube Mambas due to injury and is now back to haunt the next opponents. No, it's all good. I mean, I just picked up, uh, you know, a week ago at IPT, I picked up a, a bit of a hamstring uh, or tendon uh, injury. Uh, it's more just precaution. Uh, so I didn't really train this week. So this weekend we had Estion Crick stepping up for us, the Northern's goalkeeper. He's been superb with us, especially in the first game of the penalty shootouts. Uh, so we, it was nice to have some, some backup quality from him. And also for him, give him a chance to, to showcase his skills. Uh, yeah, so I'll, I'll be back in the box on, on, on Thursday. Uh, like I say, just a bit of precaution. Portion. Uh, I had a b- good warm-up, had a bit of a fitness test and I felt good. And um, yeah, like I said, I'm excited to get going with the boys on, on Thursday night. The tournament currently taking place at Runback Astro is the build-up to the 14th Hockey World Cup in Bhubaneswa, India from the 28th of November until the 16th of December this year. And the new coaching team appointed before the Commonwealth Games in April, headed by coach Mark Hopkins, saw Peterse earning just one call-up. Yes, of course, yeah. I've, um, I've, I've, I've really been enjoying my hockey the last couple of years. Obviously, hockey with a new coach, uh, his ideas and all that. Um, so, like I say, yes, I've, I've definitely committed, you know, for, 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 for the World Cup and then and after the World Cup, yes. So, so, hopefully I've got more juice left in the legs so I can carry on. But, uh, like I say, if I get picked, you know, I'll, I'll always be available for hockey and, uh, and I'm really enjoying my hockey at the moment. Lastly, Roger Federer began his U.S. Open preparation with a comprehensive 6-4, 6-4 defeat of Peter Govonsky in a first ATP Cincinnati Masters appearance since 2015 last night. That's your Sport News this hour.
Africa rise and shine Africa zola Africa amka na unai Recapping our top stories in Africa, rise and shine at the Sawa. Kenya's President Uhuru Kenyatta vows to end corruption. Insecurity complicates efforts to tackle Ebola and the DRC. And South Africa's struggle stalwart, Mam Veronica Sobukwe, has died. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuzura Magadza and Khumuzo Mopulane, technical producer Mario Edwards and the rest of the team, Thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org, tweet us at Africa, or WhatsApp on 277-6300327. Are taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Salif Keta with a track titled Nyanyama. <laughs>
Y yo 